Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you are doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Passive Investing in Private Syndications. This is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, you can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. Hi, this is Zach Hapsenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200-plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. People that really want to grow wealth, they're learners. Fidelity Investments did a study a few years ago and they found that there's this belief that people that have money have always had money or their families always had money or you came from money. There's a lot of class warfare in the news and things like this. Well, they did a study and they found that 88% of millionaires were self-made. So that's about nine out of 10 millionaires are self-made. This is very different than the public narrative. So what it means is that these people that have become wealthy, even a lot of people at left field, other places, they did it through through learning or, or, or you know through a career or through a business. It wasn't just like it was handed to them with a silver spoon. So I think that was just really great to see actually what it looks like. It's you know it's not how it appears for a lot of the media or a lot of the ways the things the things people the way that people view them. But people that really have wealth, they tend to be people that really want to learn more. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Ryan Murdoch from Open Door Capital, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really excited today to have Bronson Hill with us. He is a managing member of Bronson Equity and a general partner in 2,000 multifamily units worth over $200 million. He co-leads a large in-person multifamily meetup in Pasadena, California called For Investors by Investors, Pasadena Multifamily. And he's the host of the Mailbox Money Show podcast. And just to add more to it, he's also an author of the book, How to Use Inflation to Your Advantage, which is very timely right now. He's a regular contributor to YouTube and his blog. Bronson, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. 
Hey, thanks so much, Jim. Really excited to be here. Love uh, passive investing. I love the left field community. So really excited for what you guys are doing. Thank you. I'm excited for this conversation. And the first, the way we start is just like to hear your journey. How did you get into real estate? Then how did you take that and become an operator, a syndicator and, and start your business? If you can just kind of give us the full backstory, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So I started, I was a medical device sales guy. So I means I would wear scrubs and I would go into heart surgery and I'd uh, show physicians how to use their surgical equipment, which is very interesting. Learned a lot, did that for 10 years in different uh, aspects. Uh, but one thing I, I really didn't have, and a lot of people in the medical field can relate with this, is that it was very difficult to get control over my time. And a lot of people will say, hey, I want financial freedom. But to me, it really uh, meant time freedom. You know, Could I have freedom to be able to travel or take a vacation when I wanted to or spend time with family or spend time with my daughter? And so to me, I wanted to have more and more of that. So I knew real estate would help me get there. I started in single family, had a small single family portfolio, realized that was another job and I didn't want to, <laughs> want to do that. And so I learned uh, over time through a, uh, there's the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so I had a relative who did multifamily and he, uh, he said, hey, why don't you do multifamily? This, this single family stuff sounds like a lot of work. And I said, well, I'd love to, but I don't have the money. And he said, well, you can raise the money. So he taught me about syndication, learned about you know raising money for deals, investing in deals. And so we now fast forward, um, we have uh, about 200 million in multifamily. We've also ventured into <clears throat> me, assets such as ATM machines, car washes, oil and gas, things that cash flow. And um, I've raised, we've raised over $35 million and I quit my great corporate job a couple of years ago and I'm doing all the things I want to do. So it's been a real dream for me, for sure. That's fantastic. And your entry was similar to a lot of people. You start with single family homes and then people seem to branch into, you know, they realize I had the same thing, you know, like, oh, wow, it, it's a job. So I went into multifamily. And then, of course, I realized that's a job, too. So I, I went fully passive, but you went the other route. You went into syndication. Can you tell us a little bit more about that decision and why you wanted to you know, invest in apartments and, and, and raise capital to, to do that through operating the, and being the asset manager of these uh, units? Yeah. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's something I think as a passive investor, I think we should all aspire to be full-time passive investors, right? Because you have control over your time. You're able to do whatever you want, when you want. Um, to me, you know, I think by the time I left my job, I was 40, 40 years old. And I just thought, you know, I, I've got a lot in me that I really want to help people. I want to help give people opportunities to get educated on this stuff. Cause you know, I actually on the side while I was doing the medical sales for a few years, I was a registered investment advisor, which is known as an RIA. Well, now I'm still an RIA. I'm a recovering investment advisor, right? So I just realized <laughs> that like, you know, Wall Street doesn't really serve people. And so, you know, we can go, you, you and I, we can go make money and go do these things. It's great. But uh, when you can be involved in helping people to get to where they want to go, when someone, you Know, leaves their job or they do their first deal or they get involved passively. And I've had now over 1,500 one on one phone calls with high net worth investors. And it's just like, you know, people start from being very skeptical to like, hey, this really could work. And then they do their first deal. They see the cash flow, especially when it works out, you know, the way they hope or even better. And they're like, it's almost like a muscle they didn't know they had. They're like, oh, I could work that out. I could do that. Right. And it becomes this confidence that, that helps them to rise. So in the beginning, I didn't really have the money to go fully passive. So I had to develop some wealth. So that was kind of the reason with my skill set working with people in the customer service and sales side. I just found it was a really good fit. And, you know, there's been things over time we've realized that, uh, you know, cash flowing investments, especially the last year and a half, things that cash flow, a lot of the multifamily we've seen that, you know, has cash flowed well, maybe stopped cash flowing or slowed down. Um, and this other stuff has just been super consistent. So I think, you know, in general, I, I love working with people. I love, I feel a lot of purpose in really helping people free up their times. I feel like when someone's financially free, they can choose how they want to live their life. They don't 
have to go to the job anymore. They don't have to have the business, right? They can actually get in a place where they can say, well, if I had all the money I needed or all my expenses were covered, how would I want to live? And so that's really what we try to create is that lifestyle. And it doesn't have to just be about, hey, I'm going to sit in a, a yacht and have a Mai Tai and that's, you know, the lifestyle. It's, it's about what's my purpose? What am I here to do? What's the reason God put me on this earth? And so I, I think those things are really, really powerful. And that's why uh, I feel like, you know, it, it's just a, a better service to be involved in helping people to grow their wealth for sure. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and you know, you, you started out saying that, you know, time freedom was was the most important thing. And and that's what financial freedom is, right? I like how you said that it's a freedom of choices. And it could be financial freedom gives you time freedom. It could be location freedom. It could be all kinds of things. And it's different for each person. So I love how you explain that. Now, you mentioned you've talked to over 1,500 investors. That's a lot. So can you give us a few takeaways? What are some mistakes you see passive investors make? What are some successes you see them have? Can you kind of talk about some things that you've learned from talking to 1,500 LP investors? Yeah, I actually have a book coming out uh, soon in the next couple of months um, called Fire Yourself, uh, Replace Your Working Income with Passive Income in Three Years or Less. So it's just an educational book on how someone who really doesn't know about alternative assets can get started. And we talk, you know, not just real estate, we're talking alternatives, we're talking, you know, everything from precious metals to oil and gas to all kinds of different things. And so, you know, with with people that I, it's it's been very interesting. I almost feel, I feel like I've had a chance to interview um, you know, 1,500 high net worth investors, right? So a lot of times things I've learned know that time is super important. So people that, you know, really they want to have better control of their time, just as you mentioned, location freedom, time freedom, all those things are super important. Uh, reducing taxes is usually important for most people. And then really it's, it's like I mentioned that muscle, right? A lot of people have only done stocks. I remember I had a call with a, a doctor who owned his own practice. He was in his 50s and he was worth $5 million. He'd only done done stocks and bonds. And a lot of wealthy people I find, um, you know, they, they just have like a money person. They've got a money guy at Morgan Stanley or one of these groups or these big financial firms. And they don't realize that, you know, they take 2% off the top of everything. Plus they put them in their own funds. So typically it's, it's around a, you know, four to 5% amount they're getting just off the top. So these, they basically become a glorified savings account because the stock market typically only returns around, you know, somewhere between six and, you know, 9% per year on average. So I think just really education, I think is the most powerful thing. It's just kind of really uh, initially it astounded me that all these people would take time to have a call with our group or with the partners I've had just to kind of like learn about what we're doing. And so I think that people that really want to grow wealth, um, they, uh, they're learners. And this is something I want to share this fact real quick. Uh, Fidelity Investments did a study a few years ago and they found that, um, you know, there's this, there's this belief that people that have money have always had money or their families always had money or you came from money. There's a lot of class warfare in the news and things like this. Well, they did a study and they found that 88% of millionaires were self-made. So that's about nine out of 10 millionaires are self-made. This is very different than the public narrative. So what it means is that these people that have become wealthy, even a lot of people at left field, other places, they did it through, through learning or, or, or you know, through a career or through a business. It wasn't just like it was handed to them with a silver spoon. So I think that was just really great to see actually what it looks like. It's, you know, it's not how it appears for a lot of the media or a lot of the ways the things, the things people, the way that people view them, but people that really have wealth, they tend to be people that really want to learn more, which I think is really, encouraging. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and part of it is, like you said, it's educating people and telling them this is an option. You don't have to do it the old fashioned way, which as you said, is you have one stream of income through your job and then you put your all your money with the money manager. So can you talk to us about why is passive income so important and why is it important to have multiple income streams and not just one W-2 as your full income stream? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we look at life. I mean, you know, it's the whole rich dad, poor dad thing, right? You know, you go to school, you get a great job with benefits and a pension. Well, these days, no jobs are secure. No business is secure, right? There's so if you own a business, there's creative destruction. Something could change where all of a sudden the great business is now no longer even valid. I mean, technology, a lot of these things change quickly. Uh, you could have a health issue, right? Or maybe a family member has a health issue and to be able to say, hey, I'm just going to dial it down and focus on my family, right? That's really important. Or so I, th- I think that, you know, really having a plan. I mean, if you look at, you know, the amount of savings Americans have, it's something like 50% of uh, you know, Americans, if they had a $400 expense, would have a significant challenge of figuring out how to pay for that, right? It's kind of shocking, but it's just true. Most people don't save any money. It found that people that had over $5 million for retirement, which is a lot of money, but, um, you know, in some sense, it's not a lot of money, but even uh, over, I think it was over 1.5 million, it was only 3% of people had, you know, over 1.5 million that were in the age bracket of, hey, I'm somebody who's over the age of 60 or over the, over a certain age. So I, I think it's just, you know, we're, we're really generally not good at planning. We're not good at foreseeing uh, unforeseen circumstances. And so I think, you know, being able to generate wealth uh, in a time, like I've mentioned, my, you know, you mentioned my ebook um, is how to use inflation to your advantage. Well, what happens when, you know, everything costs way more and even your fixed annuities or other stocks aren't produced, all these things don't happen. It's important to continue to learn to find cash flow outside of what you're doing. Because, you know, things will change. What happens if we go into a major economic uh, issue or we have major inflation and, you know, they're running out of certain options to be able to continue to manage the debt and do things. It's just having, you know, real assets that produce cash flow is super valuable. If you have money in the bank, uh, you're losing. I think, you know, they say it's only 3%-ish right now. I think it's over 10%. And that's just money that's gone versus owning an asset that can potentially hedge inflation is super valuable. Yeah, well, you know, you you had me when you said real assets to produce cash flow because that's one of our taglines at Left Field Investors, and you know that yeah. that's what we're all about. So you mentioned inflation, you mentioned um, the book. So can you talk about that? How how can investors use inflation to their advantage? Well, you got to get the ebook to find out. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'll share a little <laughs> bit, um, but no, it is it is a free download on my website at Bronson Equity. But there's some you know alternative strategies that just people aren't aware of. Basically, the goal really is to go from cash to asset to cash flow, right? So having cash in the bank is not as powerful as having cash, buying an asset, and then having cash flow, right? So then, and then you have typically an inflation, particularly with real estate, which is really awesome. Now, there's another benefit too, if you're able to use debt. Now, debt now has gotten more expensive. When it was 3% or less, you could have a home, you could have it way below the rate of inflation, and you could have this for a long period of time. But there's two advantages when you have debt below the rate of inflation, right? You get uh, you get to buy an asset that's, you know, if, if it has, let's say you put 10% down and you buy an asset and it appreciates by 10%, well, you haven't increased, you know, your debt by, you haven't increased your, your equity by 10%, you've increased by 100%, right? So leverage can be super powerful. So if you can have longer term debt, so let's say, you know, even today, even if it's 7% or whatever it is, and inflation is actually 10, 12% or it's a little higher, you're basically paying off your debt. You're buying something today that you know will appreciate because of inflation, because it will cause assets to be worth more. Maybe not immediately, there'll be some up and down, but over the long term, we know that will 
will happen and you get to pay it off with future dollars that are worth less, right? So there's a couple of benefits just from using debt. Um, there's also some things we do that uh, we, I, I'm an investor in precious metals. Um, and actually, I don't really usually call it an investment. Um, I call it basically a store of a store of a store of wealth, right? So if you have dollars in the bank, um, you're losing because of inflation. When you have precious metals, there's a five thousand year history of uh, precious metals being being uh, money, and then you can actually borrow against the value of it, like with, almost as you would with a home with a HELOC, right? So I can borrow at you know uh, maybe eight to ten percent interest uh, only for the days that I need money. So if I need liquidity, I can borrow seventy five percent loan to value. So if I have a hundred k in with a third party vault that basically stores the precious metals, I can b- borrow for no fees uh, just for a short period of time and then be able to pay back as needed. So uh, that's a way I use it for liquidity. But I think in general, owning assets, owning real assets is great. If you can you know, use some debt there as well. We just know over time, I mean, the plan for the next 10 years, Jim, is basically at least two and a half trillion uh, per year to be at a budget deficit. So that's another 25 trillion beyond the 32 trillion that the current deficit is. And that's just what's planned. There's gonna be way more than that. And then when you count in the off balance sheet stuff, such as Medicare, Social Security, these type of pensions, there's just so much more. It could be over 150 trillion. So, you know, over time, the more and more debt you have, it becomes unmanageable. So the more real assets you can have in that circumstance, the better. So I just summarized the whole thing in just like, you know, <laughs> six sentences there, maybe. Well, that's awesome. I'm still going to read the book, but can you go back for a minute? You mentioned leverage and a 10% return will um, give you a 100% return using leverage. Can you just give an example of how that exactly works? Yeah. So let's say, I'll just make it really simple. Let's say you have a house that you buy and it's a hundred thousand. Again, I don't know any houses right now that are a hundred thousand. Let's say a house that was a hundred thousand. You put 10% down. So you put $10,000 down and the house appreciated to 110,000. So then your house, now your equity, instead of, you know, $10,000, now you have 20,000, right? So it's a 100% increase in the equity that you have. So the same principle works in multifamily deals. The same thing works in other assets we do with car washes. We're doing it with different things where we see uh, appreciation. And so typically, you know, if you have an asset that produces more cash flow uh, or it's just desirable for a lot of reasons, it typically will appreciate because, you know, rents go up, the price of car washes go up, the price of these, you know, the, the price of whatever the service the asset provides is going up, which typically increases the value of that asset. So that's, I think, using debt and, and just continuing to have safe leverage there and how you make it safe is, you know, the lower rate, the better, and the longer term, the better. That's why if somebody has a house and they've got a three or 4% interest pay, you know, maybe never sell that house, right? Like, even if you want to move, maybe never sell it, right? Because the asset is not just the house. It's probably more the loan than it is the home itself, right? Because your payment is so low because the, 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 the interest rate is so low. So, um, so that's a little bit about how that works. Yeah, that was a great example. And, and by the way, you know, you said a couple of very important things there. Um, the, the asset is the loan if you have that 3% mortgage. And, and that's, that's true, right? If you don't have to move or sell, you want to hold on to that. Even if you move, you might want to hold on to that and rent it out. But also you mentioned safe leverage. So now that, you know, two years ago, that was 80% down was what people are doing, 75% down. And so now that people are doing less leverage, that means you can anticipate that returns will be lower in the future, right? Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think part of this is investor expectations, right? We are used yeah. to consistent um 
distributions every month, every quarter, no matter what, the same amount. We're also used to higher leverage giving us high returns. So can you set expectations for us over the next few years now that things have changed quite a bit with debt? Yeah, well, I think multifamily, I, I love multifamily. I feel like I feel like multifamily is like an old sweetheart that you have a fond memory of. You know, it's like, I love it. And, and we, have, we own 200 million multifamily. But I feel like right now, um, it's tough to find great multifamily deals that a cash flow and you see great upside for the multifamily deals that I think are very interesting right now. Sometimes you have distress situations where there's some stress there, or these funds going and buying properties in distress, or you, you're finding something that's an it's an assumption, right? It's a fifty percent down kind of thing with seven years left on a three percent loan. That's very interesting, right? Because um, you know I don't think, my opinion, I don't think the Fed is going to be able to keep rates as high as they are for an extended period of time. I think it's going to come down a little bit. I think that'll give some reprieve to uh, real estate and other things because it's there is some challenge for just how do we get these deals done? And so we're seeing valuations come down. Um, so, you know, I think having cash flow these days for most people is the number one thing. And that's why, um, you know, we do this ATM machine fund. It's the most consistent cash flowing investment. I've seen it pays out every month. The uh, operator hasn't reduced a single monthly payment since the inception of the fund. So, we're, so we like investments like those, right? Things that are predictably cash flowing investments. And our, our multifamily stuff, we've seen it be less predictable. And it's less predictable because of uh, interest costs. You know, maybe there's a, a, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, bridge debt with a cap or something like that. Well, we're up to the cap now. Uh, you know, the uh, insurance cost has gone up. You know, in Florida, where even another hurricane just came in yesterday, uh, at least at the time of this recording. So, you know, two, three hundred percent increase there. We're seeing 30 to 50 percent increases still in materials and in labor. So we're seeing challenges, right? So we know it's, it's a weird time in multifamily, right? We know that like there's this incredible demand. We're three to seven million housing units short, but yet it's just hard to get it done. It's hard to get it across the finish line. So I think it's important for investors to continue to educate themselves on other assets because there are times where, and if you did anything, basically between between, you know, 20, you know, 12 and 2020 in multifamily, it's like you were a genius, you know, you just, everything went up and there's not, I mean, you could do a ton of things wrong and you still made money. It was just like you were an owner and that was like how you, what your genius was, you just got in the game. Well, now it's like, you've got to be a great operator, not even just a good operator, you got to be a great operator. It's got to be set up correctly. And so I, I see opportunities in other cash flowing things outside of real estate, uh, but there are also plays in real estate. You just got to maybe lower your expectations a little bit, have more of a long-term approach and find some of these unique situations. I like that. Well, well said. Now, you, you mentioned ATMs, and I want to dig into that a little bit. Why ATMs and and not only why, I know you said for cash flow, that's a big deal. There's also a tax component. That's a big deal. But how should an LP investor, limited partner investor, analyze an ATM investment? Because we're dealing with, you know, there's there's several sponsors who deal with the same operator, but we're not really talking to the operator, we're talking to the sponsor. And that's very different from, you know, your multifamily where you're the operator and the sponsor, right? So can you talk about ATMs a little bit, some of the advantages, and then how LPs should deal with the, the situation where it's, it's two different parties we're dealing with? Yeah, so ATMs are a very interesting asset class. Honestly, um, I don't know if you ever had this moment in life. Uh, I have a ten-year-old daughter, and I, you know, I'm trying to get her into soccer, and she's just we didn't want to do it. And then she got in, and she's kind of like, you know, I kind of like this. This is kind of cool. So that's kind of been my experience with with ATM machines too, where <laughs> yeah. I, I just was like, oh my gosh, why would people ever? Are people using ATMs? Like, I mean, if there was ever a scam, I, I was just super, you know, skeptical of it. 
But um, I, I have a few friends that I just trust with my life, and I, you know, one of them was like, "Hey, you should just you should just try it." I mean, it's it's great. So I, I invested. I found I really enjoyed it. Ended up doing a bunch of diligence on it. So I went back and you know met with the operator, background checked everybody, looked at random ATMs and you know the state of Pennsylvania, and just you know was trying to figure out, okay, well, how is this actually working? And and so one question a lot of people have that that you know are investors, and we've got quite a few investors now, is you know who actually uses ATMs anymore? Like you know, like I haven't used an ATM and paid for a fee in like 10 years, right? So who's actually doing that, right? And so we find there's actually this segment, the FDIC had a report that came out in 2021. You can search it online and it's about the unbanked or underbanked. And it was around over around 5% of US households, not a single person has a bank account. And that's just kind of hard to even fathom, right? How can you know, one out of 20 houses or, or housing units, you know, no, people don't even have a bank account. So people are using things like prepaid cards or using cash. There's a lot of cash workers under the table, uh, immigrants, other things like this. And so it's just interesting to see how the ATM space is. The more digital we go, the more we're finding people are uh, are in this cash and, and non-bank space. So there's a lot more I could say about that. But how it's structured is, um, you know, the fees come through people using the ATMs, you know, $1.52, $3 here, there, and it adds up. I mean, I was just back doing some more diligence, found some of these locations have thousands of transactions a month or more. You know, some of them have a five or ten thousand a month, and so it's just like it adds up to just be a ton of volume in one location. And so, um, but basically, what it, it provides is just consistent cash flow. The, the way that we've uh, structured it, you know, with the group I'm, I'm working with, is that um, you know, investors is to preferred return. So it's like a you know, typically around you know, twenty five percent preferred return. And so it's a mix of principal and interest starting month four or five after it closes, and then it pays out every month for 84 months. Now, it, you know, the operator has not missed a monthly payment. Uh, it could be that it happens, but uh, to have that consistency of cash flow has been awesome. And there's also um, 100% depreciation, 80% in year one. It's actually better depreciation than real estate because uh, multifamily or other types of depreciation typically goes over 27 and a half year schedule. You re, you recapture whatever years you don't use, right? So if I have a five year deal, I've got to recapture those other 22 and a half years. This one is it, the whole thing depreciates over five years. So because you take the accelerated depreciation 80 percent in year one, the remaining 20 percent in, in years two through uh, two through five, um, you never recapture. So we found some people for tax benefits have done it. Some people for cash flow. And then your last question about. Um, how do you vet something where it's kind of a fund of funds model or it's not actually the operator? I think it's a similar process. You've got to understand, well, how does the investment work? Who are the people involved? Um, you know, what's the reputation of, of the sponsor as well as the reputation of the person that you're working with? So we've got, you know, people that have invested just because, you know, we can get uh, either preferable terms or the same terms as the sponsor in different deals that we're doing, whether it's ATMs or, or car washes or oil and gas. So we, we basically try to find a win-win for our investors. But that's kind of, you know, something to make sense to get in and make sure they really understand how the investment works, how things are structured. Yeah, it's always important to uh, not get really just excited about the investment, but also understand how it works. That is good advice that, you know, in my early investing career, I, I was like, oh, that's cool. Let's do it. And didn't really get into it. And so that, that was a great explanation of ATMs. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. 
Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. I'd like to move on to car washes now. That's the new exciting one that, you know, kind of seems like it just popped up over the last couple of years. So what's the big deal about car washes? I think there's some pretty big tax advantages to that as well. But why car washes? Yeah, so it's interesting. And you're right. It has popped up the last few years. And you say, well, why car washes? What is it about car washes? Well, car washes, there's a lot of things. Car, car washes, it's a very fragmented industry. If you take kind of some of the leading fast food you know, places, the top 10, you have like 50% of the fast food market, right? You've got Wendy's and McDonald's and Burger King, whatever. Well, the largest, you take five or 10 of the, the largest chains of car washes, that's only like 5% of the entire market, right? So it's a very fragmented market. And private equity these days, they're looking for, uh, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, they're looking for deals to buy. So if I'm a private equity group, I don't want to buy one car wash for $15 million. I want to buy, uh, I want to spend a billion dollars and I want to buy, you know, many, many, many car washes, right? So there's this thing, we, it's, the whole strategy is called a private equity roll-up, right? It exists with gas stations and dental practices and car washes and things like this. When you have uh, many of the same kind, it actually increases the overall value. So for example, <clears throat> with car washes, if I have, you know, maybe five or 10 car washes that are similar, you could sell them for maybe eight to 10 times earnings and you'll get somebody coming in and, you know, pay eight to 10 times your earnings and you could, you know, sell it. If you have 50 car washes, you'll typically go up somewhere between 15 to up to 30 times earnings, right? So it's just a multiple simply by putting things together of the same kind. You say, well, why is that? Again, it's because these larger groups would rather own many than own one. It's very similar to what happens with REITs in real estate, right? If you have a small multifamily value add deal or even a smaller, let's say you've got a 10 unit in Cleveland, Ohio, well, that's very different than you have, you know, maybe 200 units you know, beachfront new construction in Miami, right? Well, who's going to, you know, the beachfront Miami is going to be super expensive. Well, REITs are going to want to buy that. They're going to compete over that because it's a higher value type of thing. It's more desirable. So it's very similar with um, how it works with, with car washes. They'll come in, they'll pay a premium. There's a couple strategies they use. They actually take the land because the land is owned too. That's where we're doing it with the car washes. They'll sell, they'll do a triple net with the land. So they'll do a land lease back to the company and they'll just immediately get a bunch of cash from that because they'll sell that to investors. And then they'll basically just continue to grow the car washes. They'll say, hey, this thing is growing. We've got 50. Let's see if we can get to 100, right? So it's a scalable model as well. And so, um, like you mentioned, there are some tax benefits for investors. It is a lot of cash flow. There is the way we structured it. There's some sharing in the upside when this event happens where we sell them uh, in three to five years. But it's, it's a mix of cash flow as well appreciation. But uh, again, it's it it's it's not only in car washes, but we found car washes, if it's like a franchise, uh, such as the, the franchise we're involved with, um, it, it could be a very scalable model for sure. Okay. I, I appreciate that. Now, I, I want to move on to the next one. And, and this is a rated G or rated PG podcast. So please excuse my foul language, oil and gas, right? That's <laughs> it. Left field investors, we have a lot of people who've gotten burned we, there's a recent, um, you know, Ponzi scheme in oil and gas that our community, some of the people have been familiar with. So talk about oil and gas. And, and of course, I'm joking about the, the naughty words, but that's kind of how it feels sometimes in our community when we're talking about it. So tell us a little bit about the oil and gas that you're that you're involved with. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you bring up a, a really good point. I mean, um, I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, what happened recently, this scam that's, that's out there. And it's just I'm really unfortunate. I have some friends that were, you know, millions of dollars into that. And it's, it's just so unfortunate. Um, uh, you know, anything like that that happens, it hurts everybody. It hurts the investors. It hurts the industry. It hurts syndicators. It hurts everybody. It hurts, you know, the way everything. So it's just really unfortunate. Um, in general, if we take a step back here and we look at, you know, oil and gas, what are, what are some of the benefits at, from a global level from investing in oil and gas? And then we'll get into some specifics on vetting and things like that. But um, when you look at oil and gas, there are some unfair advantages, similar to real estate, but even better, right? So oil and gas, there's some history of uh, ordinary, you know, uh, income reduction potentially. So sometimes 80 or 100%, uh, you know, against ordinary income. And that stuff exists, right? There are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, we see a lot of cash flow. There's a lot of, historically, it's been more of a high risk area. So if somebody's drilling for oil, uh, they would typically go in and drill blind holes and just say, okay, well, there's something here, whatever. And, you know, a lot of times you'd get nothing, nothing would come up, right? Nine out of 10 times you wouldn't hit anything. Uh, well, the technology has improved so much. They can use technology and uh, electrical, you know, they can go in and basically map out what's below the ground. I mean, down as far as you want to go. And it's just amazing. They can tell with a pretty high degree of certainty where the oil or where the gas is so they can drill it. And if they miss, they can just simply turn the drill and go at 90 degrees and drill horizontally, right? So it's kind of wild or go at 45 degrees or spin it or do all these different things. So we're finding very, uh, not very often, you know, at least, in general, we're not. If you're in a, in a decent area, you have that information. You're not finding as many dry holes. I think the bigger risk in oil and gas is kind of what's what's brought to light by this Ponzi scheme is that who are the people that are actually doing this, right? And that's the thing that's challenging to verify. And I think that's one of the biggest risks in any deal is verifying who you're working with, like who are the people. And so for the recent oil and gas deal that we've done, uh, we have you know a long time relationship with a group who um, is based out of Kansas City, and you know through their network they've got a, a, a 25 year relationship with this oil and gas group that has a stellar background. We background checked every single person that's involved with it. We just really try to make sure we understand. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know. Uh, a background check doesn't, you know, Bernie Madoff passed it, would have passed a background check, right? So, but it's just really making sure that, okay, what what are the risks of this deal? What makes sense? What are the challenges here? And I do think in, in some level, you have to, you know, talk to other investors, you got to find out reputation, you know, get online. It's the same kind of stuff we do in multifamily or other assets. But I think just really making sure that you understand, hey, what are the risks here? What, what you know, for the for the one that we've done, um, I, th I think there's a, there's a little less risk. We've actually done two types of deals. One is more in the technology space around oil and gas that is a higher risk deal, and then but it has higher upside. And then there's one that's more just you know non-operated working interests, which means we're not actually drilling, but uh, we have the right but not the uh, obligation to participate in new drilling, right? So we're, we own the rights for this land. It's producing maybe 13 to 15% cash flow from day one. So we bought it right, right? We bought this property right. Now, what we're doing is we're taking a little bit of leverage. We're partnering with some of these large operators like Marathon Oil that are already on this property, 140 wells. We're going to participate in up to 45 more wells that will juice the cash flow. And it's very similar to a value-add deal. The goal is to sell it in you know five to 10 years for a higher multiple well, you know, as, as the income increases. So anyway, lots of stuff there. Just wanted to touch on some different aspects. Oh, I appreciate that because it is a it is a scary asset class for a lot of us, um, but it's also it has the advantages you talked about. So you know, I usually recommend if you're going to dip your toe, dip your toe. Don't don't jump all the way in. Um, so that that brings us to kind of talking about you, you do a lot 
of work, you know, vetting your partners, making sure that you're working with quality people. So as a limited partner investor, what are some of the questions or how would you vet an, an operator or a sponsor like yourself or, or any operator, right? What, what are some of the questions you would ask and some of the important things to do? Because as, as a limited partner, you know, I'm probably not going to go into a background check on every single GP or part of the business, right? I'm counting on you as the, as the, as my contact point to have done some of that due diligence. So what kind of due diligence should we do on, on you and operators like you? Yeah. So I, I mean, I honestly think as a passive investor, I don't know if I've ever had a passive investor do this, but if a passive investor says, Hey, can I do a background check on your criminal background check? I'd be like, sure. You know, I'm actually kind of surprised. We've had, you know, probably 150 investors invest with us over the years. And I don't think I've ever had one to do that. I always do that on my general partner, operating partners. I always do it on them just because I want to know who I'm working with. I want to know who, who I'm there with. But I think, um, you know, there's a few things I talk about in, in my book as well that's coming out. Um, but, you know, it really, there's, you know, you're, you're trying to get a feel for who this person is. You know, you, it's, it's a combination of, you know, when you talk with them, good questions are like, well, tell me, uh, you know, learning about their experience, learning about what they've done. And then a great question is, you know, tell me about something that didn't go well. Um, and then, then good operators will not shy away from that. They'll say, oh, let me tell you this, whatever. And either if they don't have anything to say, either they're inexperienced, right? Or they are hiding, or they're not being honest, right? Because the longer you do this, something's always going to, I mean, I think even from deal one, like everything's, you know, if, if somebody's not active, they don't maybe always understand. It's never up and to the right. There's always issues in every single deal. You'll have a mix of good things, bad things, and different, you know, and you're, hopefully it turns out okay. And it's kind of a mix all in the same deal, right? So I think having, you know, that learning and that just somebody who has that open dialogue is really good. Um, I try to figure out, you know, I used to think everybody had the same values, right? I used to think, you know, our, our main core values are really long-term partnership with investors, being transparent in communication and um, conservative underwriting, right? Those are things and I thought everybody had those. I thought everybody wanted to communicate well with investors, whatever. Well, I found out, well, not everybody wants to do that or nobody wants to like hear from investors, right? So, um, so I had to figure out, you know, as a passive investor, you got to figure out, does your, do your values align, right? Do you align with uh, what this person, you know, it, it, what their group is. So you can see that online, what they say their values are. Uh, if you can talk to other investors, if you can search online, you can see some reputation stuff. But I think I think those are all important. And then also, you know, what what are they actually? What is the project, and is it similar to the project they've done before? Right. So if it's hey, we've done only C class, you know, value add multifamily in Memphis. Well, if this is you know A class in Miami, then you know that's not really the same thing, right? So I, I kind of look and say, well, there's some risk there, right? So I try to figure that out. And then I think one of the biggest things we can talk a lot more about diligence and questions you can ask. But um, this is something that's hard to quantify. But I think it's really really important is you have to listen to your gut. And no one can tell you exactly what that is. They say there's a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And it basically says you can see a small clip from somebody, like a five or 10 second clip, and you can tell a ton of information about them. Sometimes you can't even put put into words why you like them, why you don't like them, why they're trustworthy, why they're not trustworthy. So when you have something about someone, and sometimes even somebody like will go home and they'll tell their wife about a deal, and their wife doesn't even know the person. They'll say, you know, I don't like that, but I don't like like this deal, whatever. And something just intuitively comes out. Anybody who's married knows that, right? That's how did you know that? What happened? And so, I think just paying attention to that that gut level, um, and and I think with the Ponzi you mentioned, this thing that came up is sometimes you know if it if you need it or you have to have it or it's too good to be true, and there are things about that specific deal that I was aware of. I mean, I didn't really know the guys well, but you know it, it was a too good to be true kind of thing, right? People had to have it. They were selling. They were going to save millions of dollars on taxes, right? So if that's the case, maybe take a step back and say, you know, maybe there's something more here, or maybe it's time to dig in a little bit more. 
That, that that's great, great advice. I, re- I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, you know, we talked about a lot, you know, not a lot, but several different asset classes and the car washes were one of the new ones. What's what else is coming? Like, what's the next new asset class? I've seen RV parks, but that hasn't gotten as big as, as maybe it could have. And and then now I'm seeing some sometimes laundromats, but I I don't I don't know about that. Are there is there anything else that you're seeing that's uh, that's coming down the the pipe that people should be aware of? I mean, there's always new things coming out. I think it's hard to know what the next thing is going to be. I think for the example of the car washes or the private equity roll up stuff, it's you know people didn't know. Okay, you know, private equity is going to have all this money. They're not going to want to put it in in public securities. They're going to want to start buying some of the smaller mid-sized stuff. In their opinion, it's not you know small from our standpoint, but you know, a hundred, five hundred million dollar, a billion dollar. That's that's a little smaller in the world of grand finance. But um, there's going to be an appetite for that. So um, so I, I think we really don't know. I mean, honestly, I think um, and I think you know what they're looking for and what's out there. It does affect uh, you know left field investors or main street investors. But um, I think, you know, the, the goals are still really the same, right? So I think whatever deal is presented to you, I kind of talk about, I have this funnel I have in my book where I have like at the top, you have the market, right? What market are you in? We've done a lot of our, uh, our multifamily in Jacksonville, Florida, right? So I could tell you a lot about that market, the job growth, income growth, all the different things, business friendly, landlord friendly. Then you go down to who's operating this deal. And then at the bottom, you have, you know, what is the specific deal? Now they come to us typically in reverse order, right? So we get, here's the deal. And then you got to go back and say, well, hold on. What, what, what is it? What, what's the ATM market look like? What's going on in the, you know, or what's happening in oil and gas in that specific market? And then who is, you know, the operating team? And then you go come back to the deal. And then with the deal, you're saying, well, you know, and this is really the same for any deal. And this is like a, a, a you know, takeaway hope for you know, you know, people that are listening as well as how do I vet deals is you have to understand two things. You've got to understand in the deal, uh, how will I make money in this deal? And what are the two primary ways that I could lose money? Right. And if you don't understand how you could lose money, you don't understand, yeah, this feels great. There's no risk, whatever. You don't understand the deal well enough. There's always one or two primary ways you could lose money. And it's good to have that in mind when you look at a deal. And then if you have a conversation with an operator, say, hey, I've got an idea of what I think, you know, uh, the biggest risk. Well, what, what do you perceive as being the risk, biggest risk in this? And, and often they're, they'll share something different than what you had, right? So, but it's just important that you're looking at upside and you're looking at downside and you kind of assign probabilities to each, right? So I think that's, those are really good things. So whatever deal you look at, and there's all kinds of creative stuff out there. Um, I don't think the point is being exotic and just getting into all kinds of crazy stuff, but it's finding, well, what if my goal here, is it reducing taxes? Is it cash flow? Is it appreciation? Is it a retirement account? What is it? And what will this help me get there? And those are the big questions. That that is really well said, especially to someone like me, and and I know a lot of our left fielders who are chasing the shiny object all the time. It it's not just looking for the new thing, but looking for what works. And I really like how you said, you know, you gotta you gotta figure out how can you make money on this deal, but also what are the one, two, or three factors that could cause you to lose money. So that was really well said. Um, the the last question I typically ask on the podcast is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? You cannot. You cannot say the Mailbox <laughs> Money Show podcast because that's going to be in the show notes anyways. But what, what's another podcast you like to listen to? So uh, I guess you know, we can share a personal podcast as well. It doesn't have to be a business podcast or anything. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I'm a Bible guy. I love the Daily Audio Bible podcast. It kind of goes through the Bible in a year and it just, just somebody is just somebody reading the Bible. So like that's kind of a cool thing I do each morning. You can speed it up. And so if I'm on the go, it's just a great way I can kind of um, get my spirituality in for the day. It feels, feels pretty cool. So, 
Oh, excellent. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. And if listeners want to get in touch with you, if they want to buy your book, listen to your podcast, how, how do they do all of that? Yeah, the best way, I am on all social medias. Um, uh, my website's bronsonequity.com. I've got that free ebook, which is how to use inflation to your advantage. Uh, it's a free download there. You can check that out, or you can also join our investment club at bronsonequity.com. This has been great. Really appreciate you having me today, Jim. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. It's been very informative, and then we'll definitely be in touch uh, going forward. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. That was fun talking to Bronson. He's got a lot of good information. You know, he's talking about financial freedom and, and how people are working to that. And then what it gives you is it gives you choice, right? We talked about time freedom, location freedom, all kinds of different freedom, but it's all comes from being financially free, gives you options, give you choices. And of course, we talk about that in a lot of these podcasts because that is the focus of our community, right? Is creating financial freedom, whatever that means to you. And like a lot of us, he started off in single family homes and he realized, well, that was a job. And then he went on to multifamily and it's still a job, right? He's the asset manager. But it's a lot, it, well, it's the same amount of work, probably one 200-unit multifamily or one single-family home. You're doing a lot of the same thing. So it's interesting to hear that. And one thing that really impacted me that he said is people who want to grow wealth, they're learners, right? That is the whole reason for left-field investors. We want to grow wealth, not just to have a bunch of money and be able to sit my ties on a yacht, like he said, but to have that financial freedom, to have choices that he talked about. So we are learners, and that's why this community works so well. And then, you know, he nailed it when he said real assets produce cash flow. That is also what we're all about. So there's a lot of alignment between Bronson and, and our community. So I really, I really like that. And then expectations of investors. He talked about it, right? It's not always up and to the right, up and to the right with every investment. And we're learning that now. The last five, 10 years, it has felt like everything was up and to the right. And now that's changing a little bit and we need to reset those expectations. And when he's analyzing a deal, as he said, you look for how can it make you money? Yes, obviously. But also you need to look for how can you lose money? Because you need to know that that is actually more important because as Warren Buffett says, Number one rule, don't lose money. Number two rule, look at number one. And so that's why you got to look at the downsides of your investments and not just like I do a lot of time, look at, ooh, this is cool car washes. Well, now RVs, now this other thing. Okay, great. But really what you want to do is find something boring that will make you money and not lose money. So that was really great advice by Bronson. Appreciate him being on the show. We'll definitely um, follow up with him. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading his book that's out now and the one that's coming out soon. So thank you to Bronson for being on the show. That's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field.
Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.